0: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. NAFTA Talks expected to wrap up today. Uh, That being said, uh, will they, won't they? Not really sure. Of course, uh, after Mexico and the United States uh, signed a preliminary deal, uh, pressure then on Canada to get something done by today. Let's bring in Michael Tope. Troy Media, uh, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and with us now, Michael. Thank you so much for uh, being here. We appreciate this.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Although I'm missing the ribs, I really feel bad. <laughs> you about.
0: You know that. what? If there was some way we could slide them down the line to you, man, we would. Cause uh, it's just even the smell here is amazing. It's like a uh, giant. Liz could, Liz could try. <laughs> That's right. That's, well, she's working on it. She's got a couple here right in front of her. Uh, <laughs> it's just like one giant campfire here. It's amazing. All right, let's start off with uh, what your thoughts are on where we are and, of course, uh, reports about a Toronto Star article and uh, some off-the-record information. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard to say, but uh, the Toronto Star reported today that apparently in off-the-record conversations, which means that it wasn't for public consumption, that Donald Trump reportedly said uh, whether there was going to be any concessions made to the Canadian side when it came to either renewing, revising, reforming, or whatever this is, to NAFTA, he basically said, and I'm just paraphrasing a little bit, that the answer would be no, but if it came out publicly like that, you know, it would just make everyone happy and just cause a a whole pile of confusion, concern, etc. To be really fair, Scott, I mean, I I wasn't there, you weren't there, Liz wasn't there, the ribs weren't there, nobody was there from here that would actually have hurt anything. So, I don't know what was said. Do things in politics get said in private that if they were brought out for public consumption, would they necessarily sound as scintillating or as considerate or as professional as other you know, other comments that are made? No. Absolutely not. But do I know for sure that this was exactly what was said or that it was a little bit different than the way the Toronto Stars reported? I don't know either. But I guess the only thing we can say is that Donald Trump is going to hold to his guns and he wants to get the best possible deal he can moving forward for NAFTA. He got it with Mexico, at least in his mind. Now he wants to get it with Canada. Uh,
0: Is this top secret information or is this a plant of some sort, do you think? Uh, At the end of the day, this would appeal to his base.
1: Yeah, it's difficult to say. Um, Based on the White House's reaction, which was simply put that they didn't know exactly how the Toronto Star had obtained this information and sort of tried to, at least according to Daniel Dale, a reporter there and various others, try to dissuade them from actually releasing it, saying that, you know, we don't know how you got it, we prefer you didn't put it out, etc. My sense is that it was not for the base, my sense is it was probably just private chatter in the white house in one of the rooms or in trump's office i don't know which it was and um it was not really meant for people to hear it's just something the president was saying in private a lot of his advisors are around you know they'll make whatever uh, you know they'll take whatever positions they want make whatever impressions they want whether the president is being serious or not and just move on so yes it's not good information if it's true but again, we don't specifically know if this is exactly what was said, and quite clearly it was not meant for discussion beyond that room, and plus we must take into account although obviously Donald Trump is the president of the United States and has the strongest say in that White House, there are many other people around him including senior advisors. So the information sort of as they say changes by the minute, by the hour, by the by the day. You never know what he could be feeling a few hours from now as as compared or juxtaposed with what he felt at that time when he made the statement you just never know
0: should we be surprised he has put himself in a compromising situation like this i mean even to to to, to off the record say something like that it, it, it's such a tenuous time
1: yeah i think you know the answer for me it's no yeah. i mean he shouldn't keep putting himself there and you're absolutely right He does this consistently. It doesn't mean that everything he says is bad or is not beneficial to the United States or doesn't have some sort of positive aspect. Mm. But he does stick his foot in his mouth a lot when he should really learn somehow. And you know what, as the years go along, Scott, I'm not even sure if it's possible to do. He's got to learn somehow to temper his thoughts or keep certain things to himself. This sort of a statement, even if that's what he was thinking behind the scenes, was best left in his brain and that's it and just not to discuss it, to bring it out, to gauge other people's opinions whatever because in the end the give and take of negotiations including things like trade negotiations such as NAFTA there's a lot of things that change very very quickly In a, as I said in a matter of minutes sometimes a matter of hours so you know things may have moved along in the past few hours for example that if you ask Donald Trump right now his, his opinion could be very, very different. That's, we just don't
0: know. That's so true, especially if you listen to what he was saying yesterday. Uh, yeah. That being said, uh, you know, the quote here is, it's going to be so insulting they're not going to be able to make a deal. That's why he right. can't let this this information out. How How is Canada supposed to interpret that? How are the negotiators supposed to interpret that, or how will they?
1: Well, according to the Toronto Star and Daniel Dale, uh, apparently that information was brought forward, in other words, his private comments were mentioned at the meeting today, and you know, the White House obviously tried to slough it off as best they can, I mean, I don't specifically know every single thing that was discussed, but I think they tried to downplay it as much as they possibly could, realizing that the U.S. President, even though they serve him, has a tendency, as, as we've just discussed in this conversation, to say a lot of things he shouldn't in public. and. Maybe they try to say, look, don't worry about it. You know, as long as we get X, Y, Z, everything will work out okay. I don't specifically know what was said, but the Canadian government is is not completely blind. I may not like the Liberals, but they understand, after having dealt with Donald Trump for a while, what he is like and how if you continue to poke the bear, you cause problems, and if you continue to... Be a little too direct with them, sometimes that can backfire as well. So I think they've learned how to negotiate with them, but nobody perfectly understands how to negotiate with Donald Trump all the time. You just do the best you can.
0: Is this all similar to the art of the deal? Uh, You know, create the scenario, you're getting nothing, so then if you get anything, it'll seem like a win to you?
1: It depends. If this was put out as a trial balloon, which so far, based on all the information I've seen and probably that you've seen too, doesn't seem to be the case. I don't specifically know if it fits within the art of the deal because, again, I'm not sitting in front of the book. I actually do have it. Um, Donald Trump doesn't talk about saying things in private that you mean to bring out in public, so to speak. I think Hmm. that unfortunately, as time has gone along, and you know, there's been many, many years since he wrote that book. He wrote it in the, uh, the late 80s, I believe. Donald Trump is older. He thinks differently on things, and I think if you look at tapes and transcripts of Donald Trump as a young man, irrespective of his political ideology, thoughts, beliefs, etc., he may have sort of changed his mind or his opinion about what should be conveyed or discussed in a public meeting, and what should be conveyed or discussed in private, and whether there should be either a correlation or a complete division between the two. So, do I think it's part of the art of the deal? No, because I think most people would say, if you really want to get a deal done, that's not the sort of thing you do on a regular basis. Mm. But again, you know, and I keep repeating it, this is Donald Trump, this is what we have to deal with, and as long as he's President of the United States, and it's becoming more and more clear as the days and weeks pass, this is exactly his negotiating style. I'll talk about things in public, I'll say lovely things, I'll do this, I'll do that. If you irritate me, I'll criticize you, critique you, throw out tweets, etc. But in private, quite clearly, he tells a lot of people way, way too much. And this is what happens.
0: Wow. So at the end of the day, it's Friday. Will something get done? When will we know?
1: I don't think we'll know till late, to be perfectly honest. And let's put it this way. I'm not in the room, so I don't know, but I've been saying now for days... It has to happen. There just isn't a choice. I know that Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, came out just recently and said that no deal is better than a bad deal. And again, that sounds obviously lovely for the Liberals. It means that they're defending Canadian interests, defending the Canadian economy, defending Canadian business. And it's the sort of, you know, it's the sort of sloganeering that obviously they want to promote. I get that. Even if you don't agree with the Liberals, and I certainly don't on most things, I understand where they're coming from. But at the same time, Scott, if we lose NAFTA, if we lose one of the biggest trade deals and one of the most important trade deals in the world, aside from Donald Trump saying years ago it was the worst trade deal that the U.S. ever signed, which I don't agree with. NAFTA has been very beneficial if you look at academic papers and other things related to it. Um, it's an important thing because we need it to continue to, that being Canada, participate in the global economy. We are a middle power. We cannot go about it on our own, and even if we signed a different bilateral trade agreement with the United States, it would not necessarily to be our, it will not be to our benefit. And as well, if we want to protect industries like the auto industry, for example, where a lot of auto, a lot of auto parts makers and other employees really need something like a NAFTA in place to succeed, in the grand scheme of things, we can't let this go because it will hurt our economy. There will probably be heavy tariffs laid on automobiles. It will cost jobs, financial opportunities. Some businesses will close. You have to be realistic about it. If the pay, if the pen is not signed to the paper today, it's going to be very bad news for Canada overall. It doesn't mean that we're all going to die tomorrow or that the economy is going to tank in, you know in a nanosecond, but it's not the sort of thing we want to be moving forward with after the Labor Day weekend. We want to have an agreement in place where we can at least look somewhat positively towards our financial future and not wonder what the next few few days, weeks, months, years look like if we don't keep NAFTA in place and intact.
0: Can't let you go without your thoughts on what has happened with the Trans Mountain Pipeline in uh, a B.C. court yesterday and then of course Alberta announcing that uh, they don't want any part of the federal government's uh, climate plan. What are your thoughts on where this has gone?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was quite stunning when Rachel Notley of the Alberta NDP came out and said that. And, you know, it was, as I've said to some people on, on uh, social media, the reason I liked it is not because of what she proposed with it, it was the fact of what she did, where she basically gave one swift kick to Justin Trudeau's backside for what he did with Trans Mountain. So, and you know what, there's much to disagree with, at least in, for me, with Notley and the NDP and the Alberta NDP, but I like what she did there because she understands the frustrations of Albertans much the same way that many Canadians of different political stripes are frustrated with what's happening with Trans Mountain, because Justin Trudeau has put billions of dollars of, well, billions of taxpayer dollars into this project. You know, we're hoping that, you know, this move, which most people, including most small-c conservatives like myself, do not support, because we don't believe in government intervention on that level, we hoped would at least have some success, And now the court ruling, which has delayed the pipeline from moving forward, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, it's a technicality, and in a few months it'll all get solved. But what if it doesn't? What if this takes years of wrangling in the courts? What if it never gets solved? You have to be realistic about it. Just because there's been a delay in the court doesn't mean that everything is necessarily going to get better. So really, in the grand scheme of things, Scott, it was a terrible, terrible day for Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals. I know they tried to spin it differently. Finance Minister Bill Morneau tried to put a positive spin on it. I don't even know how he could have lightly thought that he would stand on a podium, and say that, and not be criticized for it. But whatever. I mean, but
0: this was a prime minister who said, a, it would get built. He said it would be the safest. It's it's the yep. most environmentally sound. There's been yep. more indigenous uh, cooperation than ever yep. be- before. It's a whole new
1: era. All that that's stuff. Right. And clearly, that's not the case. No, no, you're absolutely right. It isn't at all. I mean, you know, there were some concerns even before the court ruling came down. But, yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, basically, Justin Trudeau sold us a bad bill of goods. He really did. And, you know, there's a lot of money now on the table, which, again, you, I, the listeners, and everybody else in this country, we're on the hook for because it doesn't matter what happens. We pay for whether it actually works or doesn't work, whether it gets billed or is stalled. We are on the hook for it. And look, the interesting thing is that if he, if the federal government chooses to abandon the project, which I, right now they don't have any intention of doing, we would have to pay a $10 million penalty for it as well. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how the liberals always seem to find themselves with a $10 million law, Omer Cotter and various other things mm. combined? It just, it, I mean, I, I know it's, I'm just juxtaposing, yep. but it's bizarre how it always comes out that way. But in the grand scheme of things, very briefly, Scott... It is a complete and total mess. And anybody who says, oh, this will get sorted out quickly, don't worry about it, you have another thing coming. If you know anything about the law and you know anything about cases that go to a court of law, it does not get solved quickly. And we're just going to be sitting there, the owners of a pipeline that hasn't been built.
0: Michael Tobisman with us, Troy Media, syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great long weekend. You too. Enjoy the rip. We will, and we'll try to get you some honest. Uh, You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about this yesterday and uh, did a commentary on this as well. Uh, British Columbia has decided to pursue legal action against opioid manufacturers and distributors. Some advocates uh, against drug abuse are concerned that this is going to shift away the focus uh, from the crisis and on to... Uh, you know, directing it at the manufacturers and such. Uh, I've always been a supporter of this. I've always thought that uh, Big Pharma has gotten off uh, this issue quite lightly and has not really uh, kept up and and helped out the municipalities and what it is costing them to treat uh, this terrible tragedy. Uh, These of course were drugs that were sold and and mass-marketed very, very effectively to doctors and medical organizations And, you know, I I mean, opium, uh, the derivative of poppies and, and derivatives or versions of these drugs have been around forever. There is nothing new here. But what doctors have done is they've been convinced by Big Pharma that, you know, not to think of... Of opioids the way you did in the past, and that these were not harmful and that these were not addictive. And of course, we have found out that exactly the opposite has happened. And in fact, uh, people are extremely addictive and then moving to other street drugs when uh, their prescriptions run out. So British Columbia has decided to pursue legal action, filing a complaint against some 40 manufacturers and distributors of opioids, trying to recoup some of the costs that they've had to put out to treat the never-ending issue, seemingly never-ending issue, of opioids and how they have hit that province. To talk more about this, let's bring in Leslie McBain. She's a co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm, and she is with us now. Leslie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
2: Hi. Well, thank you for asking me.
0: So tell us about Moms Stop the Harm.
2: Mom Stop the Harm is an organization that I co-founded with two other moms who had lost their sons to um, drug harms. We are we started out mostly as a uh activist and advocacy group uh to push for better and more humane and compassionate, compassionate drug policies in in our in across Canada and provincially and federally. And we've um sort of evolved uh we still certainly have that as our first goal but we also provide a lot of support to families who have lost loved ones to drug harms, and, and also to people who have a loved one still struggling with addiction.
0: Can you tell us your story? What happened to your son?
2: Mm-hmm. My son Jordan died in 2014. He was 25 years old. Um, he had uh, had a back. He, he got a back in injury at, on a construction site and he went to our family doctor and our family doctor prescribed him oxycodone for the pain he the doctor prescribed this drug and kept on prescribing it for about six months to my son without doing any other treatment even though i had gone to the doctor um, as he was my doctor as well and told him that my son was becoming addicted and he he thanked me for the information was about it so anyway uh, jordan came to me when he was really addicted and said, mom, we have to go to the doctor and tell him because I need help. We did that and the doctor essentially fired him as a patient, got very angry because my son was addicted. And um, subsequently my son went, uh, found drugs elsewhere and um, his, and he took an overdose of drugs by accident and he died.
0: Uh, like so many people out there, your son started with this innocently enough with, with an injury that need to be treated. What are your thoughts uh, about the fact that the doctor didn't seem to be aware or acknowledge your son's addiction?
2: Well, it's shocking and stunning. I'm still angry. I, it's hard to believe, actually, that a, the doctor or a prescriber would... You know, sort of by the line of Purdue and others that this—that an opioid would not be an, a, a risky drug, would not mm-hmm. be addictive. It, it's amazing. So it, it points to the doctor's behavior, points to stigma around drug addiction. Um, it points to his ignorance, and it also heavily points to the drug manufacturer who seemed to have been able to dupe all these prescribers into thinking this was okay.
0: The thing that, that I'm sure you and, and many in your situation find so extremely frustrating is this is your doctor that are, that is prescribing this medication for you. And then when you're telling him that something's not right, he fires you. I mean, that it, it almost sounds like he knows what's going on and he's feeling guilty and he just wants you to hell out of his office.
2: Yes, that's kind of exactly the way I looked at it. Um, and I'm not saying all doctors are like this by any means. I no. mean, I think he's an exception. And he, you know, I did certainly report him to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and they uh, they dealt with him as they do. And so he didn't, uh, you know, he did learn something through the experience. But, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, not an uncommon story in in some ways. And I really think Big Pharma does need to be responsible for, for the damage they've done. Uh, But I also think that... that
0: Sorry, let me interrupt you there, and then, and because I'm going to ask you why you don't necessarily think this is a good idea. Because as someone who hasn't been through what you've been through, but looking at it from an outsider, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking Big Pharma has got off scot-free on this. They sold us time and time again the theory that you know if you're thinking about opioids the way you did in the past, you're an archaic doctor. Uh, This is a a totally different drug. It's clean. It's non-addictive. And and then even when they got rid of OxyContin, they came up with a Another one that was exactly, almost exactly the same. Okay. So, uh, at the end of the day, how can they not be held responsible uh, not only for creating this drug? And I guess if people abuse it, people abuse it, but they sold it as non addictive.
2: I think that Big Pharma does need to be re- held responsible, and I think they should pay, and they should pay a huge, tremendous amount of money, and it should mitigate all the costs to not just BC, but all across the land. Uh, For for what we've had to deal with with people who are addicted, Um, I guess my my um, my concern was that this people are dying in BC and across Canada, but in BC at the rate of four people a day from from drug overdose. And we who are activists and working in this area, our first concern is to stop the deaths because we always say a a, a dead drug user will never recover so that's our first line so when i heard this i thought why why is the concentration on this when it should be that but I've sort of evolved in my thinking around it again and just think okay yes we need to this brings awareness of the problem to to everybody in Canada this does raise the level of awareness in education so you know if if, if they if BC wins the lawsuit and gets millions of dollars it's not going to be today or tomorrow it's going to be like big tobacco 10 15 20 years down the line so I guess my concern was just that this this isn't going to help us too much in terms of trying to keep people alive. That being
0: said, let me ask you this, Leslie, does it take away the stigma? Because again, you know, people are going, well, these are drug uh, drug addicts out on the streets of BC, you know, they get what they give, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the case here. This was a self-inflicted problem by people who you're supposed to trust, that being medical staff and your doctor. So at least if it's, you know, if they step up and say, yeah, we should take some of the blame, doesn't that take some of... Of, of the blame away from people who might be saying that, you know, about Jordan, well, you know, gee whiz, he didn't get this, he didn't get that. How is it the drug company's fault? Mm-hmm. I mean, at least that takes some of the stigma away, doesn't it? When it when does. big pharma takes responsibility?
2: It absolutely does. You're, you're absolutely right. It does take some of the stigma away from those who who got caught in that particular net um it as we always say it it can be anybody's child it can be anybody's loved one who who gets caught by addictive drugs and it's either you know it can be so many reasons it's a complicated thing it can be from the doctor's prescription and the doctor like you say who you trust and that's boy that's so common but it can also be you know from trauma emotional trauma poverty any kind of marginalization of people so we try to keep the stigma away from everyone but this does certainly address one segment, uh, and a good size segment of the population, who got caught by doctors' prescriptions.
0: Do you think that this will? Uh, uh, I, I've heard a lot of comparisons, and did the comparison myself in, in a commentary I wrote. That the parallel between big tobacco and big pharma on this. Can you obviously big tobacco ahead, in, in the sense that that battle has been going on for decades. This is mm-hmm. still relatively new, I guess. Um, can you see this becoming very similar to a big tobacco issue, where these companies will be held responsible?
2: You know, I don't know. Um, I would like to think that this would move quicker. Um, it is, you know, death by tobacco takes a long time, and yeah. it's not quite so dramatic, I would have to say, uh, as these these overdose deaths. And I, I'm just not sure of all the sort of the legal dynamics of this, but mm-hmm. because drug overdose deaths, I mean, there were 4,000 deaths in Canada last year just, you know in the snap of a finger a person is gone so perhaps just that that sort of you know that view of it will make this lawsuit move quicker but um, I have no idea I, I know that a tremendous amount of resources will go into this this law this lawsuit that's a little bit troubling when we need more money for um, all the harm reduction measures we you, we need to keep people alive um, but yeah, so it's so the jury's out as it were <laughs> on this. I don't know how this is gonna roll out.
0: How does this affect one's family over and above the loss of a child? My goodness, I can't even imagine that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but over and above that, how how did this experience affect your family?
2: Oh, it's it can't be it can't be exaggerated. It's it's the worst thing, as we all know who are parents. You know, you're most you're the biggest Thing in your life is to keep your child safe and alive. So, mm-hmm. it fractures families. Um, people, people divorce. People um, can't work. It, the the grief lasts forever. And the loss of a, a child, in particular, a loved one, and also a loved one. Um, there's a, there's a statistic out there provided by the natura, uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse in the U.S. that when one person dies, when a person dies of an accidental drug or overdose, somewhere between 100 and 140 people in the realm of that person are affected and are, are in grief. And when you think of 4,000 people times 100, you know, that's a lot of people in a, in a country like Canada with a relatively small population. So it affects... Not only the families, but it, I think it affects our whole culture to have this going on. Um, the grief the grief never goes away, I can tell you that. You, you learn to live with it. It's your new normal, but it's, uh, it's profound.
0: Any advice for, whether it's a parent or not, or anybody, family member, who has someone suffering mm-hmm. like, like this, what would you say to them?
2: What I would say is try to hold that person as close as you can. Tough love, we know, does not work. Uh, you know, people t- traditionally have sort of thought, oh, just let, let him hit bottom, he'll figure it out. That, that doesn't work. The person is at great risk of dying. Hold the person as close as you can. Learn what what's in your community in terms of help and resources, detox and counseling and, and substitution therapy and all those things that m- may be available and try to access them. Don't, don't let them go. That's, that's my biggest mm. advice.
0: Leslie, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and uh, our condolences to you and your family, and and thank you so much for paying this forward and doing the difficult work that you are doing to help spread the word to others. Thank you so much, Leslie.
2: Thank you, and you're welcome.
0: Leslie McBain has been with us, co-founder of Moms to Stop the Harm. Uh, and of course lost her son due to an opioid addiction in British Columbia. British Columbia now in the process of looking into suing manufacturers of opioids and uh, distributors of opioids in order to uh, recoup some of the costs that it has cost the municipality to treat this tragedy. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa Freeman PR and pop culture expert, and of course principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Lots to talk about today, whether it's pipelines, NAFTA, or anything else we can find. Alyssa Freeman is here now. Alyssa, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this.
3: Oh, I wish I was with you at Rib Fest, Scott. It, it oh just, my
0: goodness, it just smells like a giant campfire. Well, it,
3: it's amazing. That's okay, but think oh, of all it's, the different. Oh. I
0: love it. It's beautiful. There's one down here, and as the ribs come off, they've got a a spritzer filled with Jack Daniels. (laughs) And they spray the rib. Just a blast of Jack Daniels before they hand it to you.
3: Is there anything
0: else? No. I I don't think so. I don't think so. We've, We've clearly died and gone to heaven here. Anyway, Alyssa, a lot to talk about, especially on uh, the Prime Minister's plate. Man, where do we start? Uh, pipeline and NAFTA, they're both huge issues. Let's start with the NAFTA because we are in, uh, obviously, the final day of what they say is negotiation after, uh, of course, the United States and Mexico have penned a deal. I don't know if you saw this or not, but interesting uh, column by Daniel Dale in the Toronto Star today in well, which he says, that. he sa- and this is just out, bombshell leak to Toronto Star upends NAFTA talks is the headline in secret so insulting remarks Trump says he isn't compromising at all with Canada I'll read the first part to you it says high stakes trade negotiations between Canada and the US were dramatically upended on Friday morning by inflammatory secret remarks made by President Trump after the remarks were obtained by the Toronto Star in remarks Trump wanted to be quote off the record Trump told Bloomberg News reporters on Thursday according to a source that he is not making any compromises at all in the talks with Canada but that he cannot say this publicly because quote it's going to be so insulting they're not going to be able to make a deal what are your thoughts when you hear information like this even though it's leaked we don't, we're not there we don't know how accurate it is but still, what sort of pressure does that put on talks heading into the last day?
3: Well, first, let's talk about leaks, Scott. You know, leaks are never really leaks. They're all, they are all—they seem unintentional, but they're always quite intentional.
0: That was my next question. Do you, and, think, do you think that's to make it look, I mean, this is typical Donald Trump strategy. You're not getting anything, so when you do get something, it's like you've won a prize?
3: Well, here's the thing. You know, he gave this Friday deadline. And talk all week on every new show that you've tuned into has said the same thing. Is he bluffing or is he not bluffing? And then we have um, this meeting that Christian Freeland went into last night at 10.30, and she emerged at 10.35. So she said that they, you know, had some things to say to one another and that the talks will resume. Well, okay, five minutes? Mm. I don't think she did much of the talking. Yeah, really. <laughs> Based on that, you know, and first of all, you know, Trump is saying he does, he wants to change NAFTA, he wants to change the name, he wants to do this. A lot of stuff he cannot do unilaterally. And a lot of things that need to happen over the course of 30 days in order for them to take effect. What he is doing is that he is holding Canada's feet to the fire. Um, He is showing some big holes in our negotiation strategy, so to speak. And he's exploiting those holes, and, you know, he pushed us away from the... And, and, and I don't know if this was part of Canada's whole strategy on the back end. I have no idea. But optic-wise, just from the, you know, a layperson, you know, sitting around, you know, watching reading the newspaper and watching the news, it looks like that we have that there, you know, we're the tail and we're being wagged. Yeah, christopher Freeland was in Europe, I think, on vacation for the past couple of weeks, and then suddenly she was called back. Mm. Well... Okay, so what were you doing in Europe, I guess? And maybe she's been working really hard, wanted to spend some time with the family, but and obviously keeping in touch on the on the day-to-day goings-on with what's you know with the negotiations. But they pushed us away. The U.S. made a a, 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 a sort of a, a bilateral, I won't call it a deal because I don't think it's a deal, but they created some sort of plan with Mexico, and now we need to fall in line. And you know maybe we do have to come up with some concessions or maybe we will have some sort of plan by the end of the day it remains to be seen but from a sheer perspective it, it seems like we're not the obviously we're not the strong ones in this um, conversation that the US has all the leverage and we are going to have to kowtow to whatever they say
0: uh, he it certainly looks and it certainly appears like his tough guy negotiation tactics have worked <laughs>
3: You know, it does. And and I was talking about this earlier this week. And, you know, just when you think that there's news that will take out Trump, you know, I've never seen someone or some administration turn the channel so effectively and so Mm -hmm. quickly in my life. Uh, After John McCain died and this whole sort of dithering on whether he was going to um, lower the flag at half-mast, whether he was even going to put out some sort of, like, tweet of condolence. Yeah, you know, it, it was horrible, and the, and the veterans were on him, and everybody was on him for his very poor sport behavior. And just when you think that, gee, you know, th- this is really awful, this is sort of a great equalizer um, denigrating a, a great American hero, at least in many people's eyes, you know, click, along comes NAFTA, pushes that off the front page, and first for a lot of people, and now it looks like he's going to get this big win by playing the tough guy against Canada.
0: Uh, speaking of the McCain funeral um, uh, and the whole flag Uh, flap and and such. I remember having uh, uh, somebody, an organizer, uh, uh, somebody from an organization of veterans, American Veterans Association in the U.S. talking about this. They were uh, very vocal about him uh, and the whole flag flap and not acknowledging properly uh, the passing of, of John McCain. And I asked them, like, this is, this is, this is his base. Uh, whether it's 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 you know fooling around with Russia or whether it's condemning a, a war hero, how is this resonating with veterans? And they try very hard not to make it political, but you have to think this is resonating with vets.
3: Well, and and one would think that, and uh, you know it seems that maybe the his his uh, circle of advisors say, okay, maybe we blew it on the McCain thing, but now we're going to make a deal where American cars are now going to have more American parts. And that's more important to our base to put money in their pockets so they can, you know, see the future rather than the way we behaved against McCain. And that's what I mean by turning the channel. So I think that whenever they turn the channel, they always turn the channel towards their base. They're not turning the channel so that you and I are appeased. They're turning the channel so that it will, it will keep their base in line and online. So, uh, you know, I think that there was some damage done with the way he um, treated uh, McCain's passing. But uh, by and large, I wonder if it'll it'll erode any um, you know percentage points of what his base thinks of him. It, it remains to be seen. But right now, he seems to be holding. He seems to be holding firm. Yeah.
0: Uh, getting back to NAFTA, uh, we we commented at the beginning of these negotiations, and it seems like they've been going on forever now. Uh, how organized Canada seemed to be in the sense that uh, there there were uh, there was a delegation with all different levels of government there, and they were being proactive, visiting states in the U.S. and and talking to governors and such about all of this. It seemed as if we had a handle on this. What the heck happened? And could any other leader have done things differently?
3: It's hard to say, and, you know, I'm being a total armchair critic on this, and I had to believe that. I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of what is, was a big fan of Christian Freeland, and I think it seemed to be that she had things well in hand. I think one misstep happened when, they had, you know, we put our demands on the table. One of them included, I don't know, women's rights and uh, indigenous rights and uh, all sorts of sort of human uh, human rights-based um Issues and I think that the U.S. and Mexico probably looked at us and went, "Okay, well, what does that have to do with how many parts are in cars?" Yeah. So uh, I think that when we sort of get up on our self-righteous heels, people tend to snicker or, you know, look down on us because of it. And I don't think that that played well in in, in you know the international. Also, certainly not uh, among uh, Trump's team in, in any case. And then, you know, a while ago, Krista Freeland won a Diplomat of the Year Award and received the award in Washington and then took the time at the podium to trash the states and tell them what she thought. You know, I think what happens in in, in many cases is that you start to believe your own press and you can never do that. Mm. You're never as great as people say you are. You always have frailties and there's always something that people will be able to pick apart or that a weakness will show. And I think that we began to believe our own press. We began to believe that we had this well in hand. And then Trump kicked us out, you know, his team kicked us out from the negotiating table as a tactic and said, OK, well, you know, we're done talking to you and we're just going to go alone with with Mexico. And, you know, the more I talk about this with you, I don't know if this was their own thinking, if this was their unilateral thinking, or if this was, Scott, and here's my big theory here, are you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, when Trump came up for the G7 meetings and then he left, and then Trudeau took the opportunity to say, well, I'm not going to be pushed around by Trump, and Trump saw that, felt that he was being, yeah. um, that, it was, that uh, Trudeau was rude, that there was no place for that. It made him look weak, and especially since he was going to see Kim Jong-un and felt that that gave him, uh, put him in a position of weakness and not in strength, he was angry. Hmm. And this whole goings-on right now, in hmm. order to placate Trump and get back into his good books, This may be part of that. This may be the quid pro quo. And they said, okay, you screwed up, you know, with us at the G7. And now if you want to be in our good graces and listen, you don't know who's going to be in after the next four years, you better start now. So hmm. this may be all some sort of, you know, play acting and just playing it out in the press in order to make Trump look good. And, and that may well be a reason, but that is pure and utter speculation.
0: And, you know, how many other world leaders are thinking we don't want to get on his bad side? I mean, come on, it's not that far-fetched a theory when you think about it, because he's the sort of guy where he would jump all over someone for that sort of thing.
3: I think there are certain world leaders. I don't think that Angela Merkel is one of them.
0: Yeah, good point.
3: Um, I don't know about Macron. Um, you know, Theresa May was very buddy buddy with him, and then I think she sort of, you know, he he fell out of favor with her, and vice versa. So I think it depends on what you are negotiating with, and 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 what you need to do with the states in order to keep make sure that that keeps going. So you know, they look at this type of behavior, they see how he can be petulant and erratic. I mean, think about he had three press conferences the day that John McCain died. Hmm. In each one of them, the reporters yelled at him, President Trump, President Trump, are you going to make a statement about John McCain? And he sat there with his arms crossed, crossed, his chin thrust out, and his lower lip it's brutal. You know, uh, jutting <laughs> out, it, it, yeah. almost like a child. He yeah. didn't invite me to his party, didn't invite yeah. me to his funeral. I'm not going to say anything nice. Yeah,
0: yep. I hear you. All right, let's talk about pipeline. Justin Trudeau said this pipeline would be built. He said it would be the safest. He said it's the most environmentally friendly pipeline, uh, that they'd done more work in, 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 as far as the environment and safety than anyone else. Uh, and then, of course, the indigenous issues, uh, truth and reconciliation. He was looking after them more than any other others before him, all bases were covered, and then it gets thrown out. What happened here?
3: Good question. You know, and, and from what I've been reading, you know, okay, so the judgment that came down said that there wasn't enough consultation with the First Nations people. Mm-hmm. And I need to ask you, I mean, this is not anybody's first rodeo in the government in terms of what it means to do a consultation. Yep. So why didn't they do what they felt needed to be done and not underdo it, but just, you know... Well, you know, he sold it. Trudeau, he sold
0: it. Trudeau sold it as if he had overdone it. We are, we're, we've got h- higher standards than, than what we even need to be. I mean, that's the way he sold it to us.
3: I think that what he said and what actually happened are two different things. So when the judgment came down and said that he, they had not done enough... You know, one commentator from the, a professor from the University of Alberta said, there's no light that goes on and says, okay, you've done enough consultation. So you need to make it look like you've done. You need to make, they should have made sure that it was absolutely bulletproof that this would have sailed through. Yeah. And now that it's not, and, you know, people say, oh, yeah, this is going to go on. We'll get this back on track. Come on.
0: Still going to take a couple of years, even if it, if it does get back on track.
3: And, and the world view of Canada now is, you know, it's difficult to do business here.
0: So how does he recover from this? Because, of course, he's always been the peacemaker. He's always preached sunny ways. I remember the the shot of him bringing uh, uh, the B.C. Premier and the Alberta Premier together and kind of a smug look on his face like, you two are going to sit down until you resolve all of this. And, of course, none of that, the, none of that even ha- ever happened. So at what point does he take charge? At, at what point does – how does he move forward with this?
3: Okay, well, there's the Kinder Morgan issue. There's the NAFTA issue. Yeah. You know, these, you know, they say things come in three, so let's see what happens next week, Scott. But, uh, you know, these are two heavy, heavy loads on each shoulder. And, you know, for people who feel angry about this, and the West has never been enamored with liberals at the, at the get-go, this is certainly not going to do, um, you know, help him in any, uh, you know, way, shape, or form in order to curry favor with those in the West. You know, Rachel Notley is absolutely... Um, She's incensed. Yeah. I have never heard her so angry.
0: And pulled out of the any sort of federal climate plan.
3: And, you know, when she first became premier, the oil and gas lobby was very suspect of her. Yeah. Felt that she was, you know, a lefty. She didn't believe in drill, baby, drill. And that she's become a real champion for that lobby. And she was angry.
0: It's hard to believe that B.C. and Alberta have the same type of government. Uh, I, <laughs> hard to believe they're the same party.
3: Wonder how, so wonder how Jagmeet sings loving that right about now. You know, so I, I have to say that um, this is really a mess. But and he's this been, is not something you're going to climb out from very easily.
0: He has been preaching sunny ways. He, you know, nobody goes home happy. Everybody wins, and and many I've had professors on the air call him vacuous. Is this what we're seeing now? At the end of the day, he can't get the job done he can bring the people together he can he can he can sell he can sell a good rock concert but he can't get the decision done he can't get it over the field goal he can't get it over the goal line rather
3: i think this is more you know um is there is you know is there anything there i think so people are talking about and even if you're just doing water cooler conversations i was at my chiropractor and he says don't tell me you voted for Trudeau." and i'm like okay how much was that session so <laughs> you, you know uh, people are very very angry with him and, and it's interesting I'd, I'd like to know sort of what his base thinks but, I mean, even so, when you create uh, a, a waffling sense of um, dealing with issues, it, it doesn't work. And in some cases, you know, I think that Trudeau does things based on what he believes is morally correct. And sometimes they just happen, and sometimes they, it's, I don't think that they happen in consultation with his advisors but you know we're now in a run-up to a federal election, and I think that this is what I call death by a thousand cuts. Hmm. So there's a lot of issues that pile up. You know, he had the Omar Carter issue, and then there's the immigration issue that he has that he has to deal with, and now there's Kinder Morgan, and now there's, um, you know, and, the, and and there's NAFTA. I mean, you know, it makes you not want to get up in the morning, quite frankly, Scott. Just listing all those things.
0: So, lots talked about this guy being a, 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 two, a two-term uh, prime minister. Uh, is that the case? I mean, we've talked about this before. He sells feeling more than he sells results. Can you just keep preaching sunny ways, everything's great, everybody, uh, without providing
3: results? I don't know. I mean, you know, they always say that the key to a liberal victory is how Ontario goes. And I, I don't, you know, you, I don't know how what Ontario thinks right now of Justin Trudeau. We certainly know that they dismissed the Liberals on a provincial basis, but you know, sometimes there's a line in the sand about what people think um, their what their politics are federally versus what they are provincially. So, it, you know, it would be interesting, and I would love to see a poll right now. Uh, actually next week, or in the next two weeks, now that all of these things have happened, sort of, you know, where his favorability ratings are. I mean, I am sure there are polls happening as we speak. Uh, many of them are run, and, um, you know, polls are engaged by the parties themselves. But I'd love to see a public poll as to, sort of, you know, his standing right at this moment.
0: So what does the Prime Minister say this weekend? How does he sell this?
3: He goes for a run shirtless. it be <laughs>
0: hot.
3: I mean, the weather.
0: Oh man! Or so,
3: when in doubt, go overseas, where they, you know, that's always been a strategy, right?
0: That's right. Another you know, trip to India, perhaps. Go
3: somewhere where people fawn all over him. Although I have to say that I don't think that would happen so much at this point. I mean, that was a strategy that worked really well for about 18 months, two years, but I think it's worn out. It's welcome.
0: Uh, do you think he should just try to ram this through, or will he? Can he will he, he just tick off more people.
3: You know, I don't know. I, I think that you always have to say, err on the side of of what's going to hurt me less, and um, it would be interesting to see what he does with this, because, you know, while the ruling was uh, in favor of the First Nations people, not a lot of them vote. I don't think they're a big voting block.
0: Alyssa Freeman has been with us, PR and pop culture expert principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great long weekend.
3: And you too, Scott.
0: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.